This morning we'll be reading from Psalm 19. It is, uh, it's in your uh, bulletin. It's also, um, if you have a phone app and so on, uh, we're going to read Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, power pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. kind of excited to be able to continue our uh, sermon series through the Psalms that we've started to work through for the summer. And this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 19, as Sean just read, uh, under the theme of knowing God and what it means to know God. And so we start by asking the question, what does it mean to know God? Uh, we live in a culture where there are... Um, many voices claiming that there is no God or that if there is one, he is, he is impersonal and can't be known or that if there is one uh, and we can know him, we can only know him on our own subjective terms. But what does God tell us about himself? How has he revealed himself to us and what implications does this have on our lives? In Psalm 19, David illustrates that God can, in fact, be known. And not only can he be known, but he wants to be known by us. And even more, he doesn't just want us to know about him, but he invites us into personal relationship with him. And so let's dive into the text and into David's case for this. Um, right away in verses 1 to 4, look at the language that David's using here. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day, day pours out speech and night reveals knowledge. 
Creation speaks. Creation testifies. That's the first point that we're going to kind of focus in on. The heavens and the skies are engaged in the unceasing worship of the one true creator and sustainer of the as Paul mentioned a couple weeks ago when he was preaching from Psalm 8, David uh, spent his early years as a shepherd wandering the hill country looking for prime grazing areas, I guess. And he probably would have spent many nights under the desert sky staring up at the wonder of the universe and listening to it speak. I mean, look at verse 3. It says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. David suggests that the fact that nature doesn't literally speak using human language doesn't exempt anyone from its clear and continuous message. In fact, quite the opposite is true. The testimony of creation transcends all cultural and language barriers. It is a truly universal language. And David extends his metaphor, or specifies it rather, as he gets into talking about the sun in 4b, where he starts there. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. David gets more specific here. He, he points out that the sun, the very center of our universe, um, in the ancient Near East, all the cultures that we know anything about um, seem to have worshipped the sun as a deity, right? And they looked to the sun as a source of life. It was the most powerful thing in the physical universe that they could worship. And David here correctly identifies the sun as merely one of the created things designed first and foremost to point us to its far greater creator. David is saying, don't, don't worship the thing Worship the one who designed it and spoke it into being. And the night sky serves as a tent, which the sun goes into at day's end and then emerges from in the morning. And here uh, the metaphor uh, gets a little bit PG as David <laughs> describes the sun as a bridegroom emerging from his, his visibly exuding an irrepressible joy and satisfaction. David also compares the sun to a strong or a mighty man. And he's painting a picture of, of a warrior who has trained his whole life for battle. He's literally made for this. So much so that when he rushes into battle, he is, he's visibly filled with joy. And this is not the kind of dude you want to face on the battlefield. Right? There's nothing that's going to deter him from completing his objective. And in the same way, day in and day out, we can have confidence that the sun will rise and the sun will set, whether we can see it or not. Lastly, David tells us that nothing is hidden from its heat. The end of verse 6. And remember who's writing this, right? David, as a Palestinian shepherd, would have known better than anyone that nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. In order to escape it, you would have to flee underground into caves. Right? And I think one of the points that David is pushing with this metaphor is that no one anywhere on this earth is exempt from the knowledge of God revealed through his creation. And that to deny the existence or personal involvement of God in his world 
we have to actively suppress this knowledge. And the Apostle Paul makes this far more explicit in Romans 1. He says, uh, Romans 1, 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And this suppression of truth is rampant in our current culture. Um, famous atheist and author Richard Dawkins in a, in a documentary, it's an old documentary that I really enjoy, he's interviewed at the end and he is asked the question basically um, hypothetically, if he were wrong and when he died he had to stand before God and explain why he had dedicated his whole life to trying to turn people away from him, what would he say? And without missing a beat, Dawkins quotes uh, Bertrand Russell and he says, Sir, why did you take such great pains to hide yourself? And that's an incredible statement, considering Dawkins himself has admitted that the, the evidence of design in nature is becoming increasingly hard to deny. Um, Christopher Hitchens said something similar in some of the B-roll footage from uh, a documentary called Collision, where he went on a speaking tour uh, with a Presbyterian pastor named Doug Wilson. And in a candid moment in the back of the car where there was a camera rolling, uh, Wilson asked Hitchens which of the arguments for the existence of God he found compelling, if any at all. And, uh, and Hitchens said right away that his entire circle of career atheist degree it's the argument of the fine-tuning of the universe that we live in. The fact that if you know, a hair's breadth this way or that way, and any of the factors that had to come together at the same time, in the same place, and none of us would be here. But it's interesting, he says, not that that turns him over point, because it's not trivial. And what he's saying, essentially, I mean, if you have to labor at explaining away the evidence of something, you're admitting that the counterclaim is self-evident. So that is an active suppression. And I'll use, I'll use just one more uh, quick example. Um, there's a radio show from the UK called Unbelievable, and uh, they did to make sense of life. And on the pro side, they actually had, it was interesting, they had, uh, Jordan Peterson representing the pro side of the argument that yes, we do need God to explain life. And on the anti side is Susan Blackmore, who is also um, a professor, a British professor and a career atheist, friend of Dawkins, the whole bit. And uh, Peterson is pushing her on the fact that our emotional responses to beauty in the world or incredible things is actually evidence, it reveals something. And in her defense, she said this. This morning, for example, I looked out and it was so green. We've had frost and white the last few days, but it was green this morning. And I was filled with just gratitude to the universe, if you like. It's not really God because it's not a creator. And she said, I don't know. And that's an incredibly honest answer, but it's hardly satisfactory. 
And what Peterson was exposing is that the feeling and expression of gratitude is necessarily interpersonal. Immediately after watching that talk, I, I just typed in uh, gratitude definition or whatever. And the first thing that popped up is this. Gratitude, thankfulness, gratefulness, from the Latin word gratis, is a feeling of appreciation felt by and or similar positive response shown by the recipient of kindness, gifts, help, favors, or other types of generosity towards the giver of such gifts. When you wake up in the morning after a particularly restful sleep and you're stretching and the sun is filtering through the curtains or whatever, and you can hear the birds chirping. And of course, this doesn't apply to parents of young children. Um, <laughs> but if you were to climb up to Spencer or to uh, the Dundas Peak at the end of October and you look out over Spencer Gorge and it's in full color, it's just like, for the privilege of having had that experience, it is pointing you to your Creator. See, we know God simply by living in his world. And in theological terms, uh, this type of knowledge through the natural world is called general revelation. And by it, we can certainly be filled daily with awe at the glory and the majesty and the power of God. However, it's called general revelation for at least two reasons. First, because it's intended for a general audience, uh, for everyone everywhere at all times but secondly it's general because it lacks specific details about who god is it's an impersonal sort of knowledge it's just enough for well not just enough but it's enough for us to know that we need to know more and thankfully god didn't leave us to try and figure out everything on our own he spoke he explained that we are created in his image and that his moral law is written on our hearts. But because of sin, it has become blurry and distorted. And so he gives us his very words to have and to meditate on. And for David, uh, these words would have been in the form of the, the Torah, or the law, or the instruction of God found in the books of Moses, the first five books of our Old Testament. And so that's our second point, is that God clarifies who he is through his law. And this is, this is the shift here. This is what David is talking about now in verse 7. And from 7 to 9, David has these six little couplets where he praises the unparalleled goodness of God's law as it was revealed to the Israelites uh, through the development of this, this scripture that they had. And so David, yeah, he says, the law of the Lord... The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. But as sinful people who desire personal autonomy over anything else, when we hear words like law, commandment, rules, precepts, uh, delight is typically not our first joy producing. But uh, consider the analogy of a kite, if you will. And this is shamelessly stolen from uh, a hip-hop group called Beautiful Eulogy. But they took it from their pastor, so I don't feel bad. <laughs> 
And it's from their song, The String That Ties Us. And so uh, indulge me for a moment and imagine that you're a kite. You're a kite and you're soaring through the sky, right? And the cool breeze is rushing around you and you feel the warmth of the sun on, on your back or whatever. And uh, it, like, it must be incredibly thrilling and exhilarating, right? But after a period of time, as you kind of get used to it, you're likely going to notice this pesky string tethering you to the earth, right? And you start to think maybe, you, you start to think about it a lot more, and you're fixating on it, and you think, if it weren't for that stupid string, I could climb and all the way to the clouds and see the whole world and go wherever I want. Right? But what happens when you touch a kite string? Right? It might, depending on the wind and weather conditions, it might glide for a little bit, but ultimately um, that sucker's going down. And uh, it won't be pretty. Because whoever invented the kite did so with certain universal laws of physics and aerodynamics in mind. He designed the kite with a specific purpose that requires it to operate within the confines of those laws. It's the tension of the string restraining the kite against the force of the wind that allows the kite to do what it was created to do. And likewise, we humans cannot ever be fully and completely what we were designed to be outside of the gracious boundaries of God. Far more than rules. When God gives his law to Israel, he gives them the blueprint for ultimate human well-being. He reveals himself within a set of parameters designed to teach us how to reflect his character in the world the way we were created to. And it's within the safety of these confines that true freedom is found. Freedom from fear of judgment or condemnation and freedom from our own self-destructive choices. And it's important to notice in this section as well a shift in David's language, particularly in reference to God. In verse 1, when he starts and he's talking about sort of this general revelation through nature, um, he uses just the generic word for God. It could be capital D God or lowercase d God. It's just the word God. And so it's, it's, it's sort of vague, sort of unspecified. But here in this section, as David is praising the law, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, six times. He's using the personal covenantal name of God that he had given to them as he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And so this isn't just any God. Pure grace. David's trust and love of these rules were predicated on his personal relationship to this God. He's saying my relationship with my father is so much better than doing my own thing. His plans and purposes and intentions are so much better. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. David is describing the finest things in life at, at that time. Um, and he 
says that the relationship with this God is far, far better. And once we get this, once we begin to see God's law as the ultimate good, suddenly it doesn't feel restricting and limiting anymore. It feels like the safe embrace of a father. Verse 11. There's a transition here in the psalm. David says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. David is saying that there is both a warning and a promise contained in God's law. In tandem with the realization that God is so holy, so just, so good, comes the realization that we can't possibly live up to this perfect standard. And so David moves into a, a time of, of confession and repentance, and he says in verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. You see, God's law functions as personal revelation of God's perfect character, but it also functions as a mirror that shows us our true condition. And this leads us to understand not only our need to repent, but, our, but more than that, our need for someone to make atonement on our behalf. Otherwise, we'll be crushed by it. In verse 13, David prays, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. David rightly understands that he is utterly powerless to root out the sin in his heart and in his life. And you don't have to be a believer to admit that you have bad or self-destructive habits that you feel like you can't kick, no matter how hard you try. Where are you going to turn for relief from them? Do you ever pray this way? Do you have this kind of clarity about your true condition? Well, things are getting bleak now. Sorry, Matt. But then David ends it well. So we go to verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Look at how David concludes this prayer. He's just finished confessing that his complete and utter inability to live a life pleasing to God, and now he turns around and simply asks that his life and worship will be pleasing to God. So which one is it? Is he or is he not able to please God? And the answer to both questions is yes. See, David was leaning on the promises of God because part of the law that was revealed to Israel was the sacrificial system, an intense system of rituals designed, uh, designed to satisfy Israel's need for someone to make atonement for their sin. But this atonement that was provided by the sacrificial system was limited. And it had to be performed every year and you had to get everything just right. 
destroyed. It was meant, and this is because it was only promises of a good God who has promised to meet the requirements on his behalf. God, what God demands in his law, he gives us in his gospel. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death of David knows this. And my friends, to know this is to know the God who created you, the God who loves you, the God who redeems you. This is why the shift began in David's language in reference to God, right? He finishes by saying, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. These are intensely personal titles. To know this is to know God. To know this is to be free to join David in praying, verse 14, while fully acknowledging that it is impossible without having our hearts fundamentally reoriented towards God's design and purposes for our lives. To know this is to dedicate our lives, to rededicate our lives, as the Westminster Catechism so perfectly put it, to glorifying and enjoying God forever as is our purpose. My friends, the creator of the universe and everything in it has decided for no reason other than for his glory and enjoyment that he wants us to know him in personal relationship. And he has done absolutely everything required to make that possible. No veil remains. Do you know him? If you're here this morning and you want to know more about the God who's revealed himself in this book, the Bible, or if you have any questions or objections, even just please come find me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that in your grace and mercy you have revealed yourself to us in the beauty and splendor of the natural world, but also through your word that you stooped to allow something of your glory to be captured in human language. But most amazingly, Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, let us glorify you with the word in all this through the perfect and completed work of Jesus. Amen.